0: As we move through human history, there is this one constant, the kingdom of darkness opposes the kingdom of God. There are keys to understanding this as these two great themes of scripture advance in the earth. Welcome to Current Affairs with Sam Solon. Now as we continue to discuss the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation, just as I mentioned, of of course uh, we talked about the 140 and 4,000 as a remnant of Israel but also from the uh, 7th chapter, we had seen this remnant before referring to the broader uh, company of the redeemed, the perfect number as it were. Now, Beginning at verse 6 in uh, Revelation 14, we see a time, a shift of things. It's a time of judgment in a way that is different from the great white white throne of God uh, and that judgment at the end of the age. This is the judgment of ripened fruit, um, this concept is well established, <coughs> well established in the Scriptures. On many occasions, Jesus referred to judgment at the end of the age as a harvest. Things being ripened, um, for example, the tares and the wheat growing together until the time of harvest, the sheep and the goats separated at the time of the harvest, so to speak. Repeated references to thirtyfold, um, sixtyfold, hundred hundredfold. So inevitably, because God planted the earth as it were with a seed and in fact said that the earth was designed to bring forth uh, seed and fruit in in a cycle that would culminate at the end of the age. Uh, There he speaks of, uh, as long as the earth remains there will be seed time and harvest. So again, it's so critical that we understand that although the language of the book of Revelation is highly symbolic, and cannot be viewed as a um, a literal, not in many instances is it literal, Um, yet the principles that it refers to are throughout the Scriptures and that's how we know that these symbols are to be confined uh, in their interpretations they ought to be confined to specific biblical themes that are already uh, well well established throughout the scriptures. So, again, beginning in verse thirteen, he's speaking of two types of harvests. One harvest, uh, he had actually in in uh, at the very first of chapter fourteen, begun in talking about the remnant of Israel. He really began to talk about. A harvest at that point. But it was specific to Israel, the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and all the prophecies that we referred to in the last um, episodes or broadcasts, where God promised to save a remnant of Israel, the perfect remnant. Following on from that, they described, those are described as a first fruits company. Uh, in the as they are presented. Now a first fruit company is typically uh, the, the indication of the type of harvest that one is to expect. So the notion of a first fruit company preceding the harvest of the earth and preceding a harvest divided into two things one, the righteous of the earth and two, the unrighteous of the earth. is not unusual at all uh, in the sense that uh, the concept itself of a first fruit uh, is an indication of the type of harvest that is to come. For example, when Jesus is described as the first fruits of those who slept, uh, meaning the first to be resurrected of a company of those to be resurrected he is the prototype he is the uh, he is the pattern and so in 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 a sense referring to the 140 and 4000 of israel it uh, as a first fruit company it goes back, as it were, in this cycle of of ending and beginnings when at the beginning of the church in uh, in the first century there was a taking from amongst the Jews of uh, a first fruit, as it were. Um, Certainly the twelve apostles were part of that first fruit company, people like um, Stephen would be part of that first fruit company. Uh, Persons to whom Jesus had said and those who lived in the reality of what Jesus had said when He said, "'And you will be hated by all the nations because of Me' and He said other things such as, "'Don't worry about what you're going to say,' "'you'll be taken before governors and kings' this was as early as Matthew 10 certainly not the great prophetic scriptures of Matthew 23, 24, 25 where those things speak more of the culmination of the age. So there was a first fruit company at the beginning of the calling out of the saints and that first fruit company, at that time, was Jewish. The, the, The gospel was first preached to the Jews the, the great commission was Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of, of the of the earth. As the cycle concludes, and as Israel rejected the gospel after initially the gospel of the kingdom, after initially receiving it, the cycle now comes back around, and as God is about to reap a company from the earth. Of the, of the redeemed, Israel is presented in the vanguard in the form of a remnant of all of the twelve tribes, twelve times twelve times a thousand, which is the perfect picture of God actually having taken from amongst the Jews a company that fulfills the eternal plan of God that every tribe, tongue, language and nation would yield up a fruit to God and to Christ formed into the body of Christ as a man in the image and likeness of Christ for whom the primary task is that of exact representation. So as we move into the declaration of harvest consistent with, as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, that's true in the physical or natural world. It is also true in the spirit. And it, no surprise here, this should be what it is as the age is concluding. All right? He says, So then uh, I saw another angel, verse six, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now the gospel that is preached here is preached under duress, so it's a very concentrated sound. This is more a gospel that is not the gentle entreaty that it had been all along, you know the the presentation of the message of Christ and His kingdom uh, in the context of grace through faith. That's not it. So it does speak of a time then of great distress upon the earth, and the gospel is focused to its barest essence in the time of this distress. Now, one of the things to keep in mind. And for many people who have the idea that there will be a rapture or a taking out, they miss the point. The point is that as these events, spoken of throughout the Book of Revelation, unfolds, there is a tightening of the message. There is uh, the message is is is. Uh, coordinated with the events that are going on. So there's an urgency to the message, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, Paul said, we persuade men. Now there's a a, a convergence of earthly circumstances, of extreme duress, wars and rumors of wars, uh, pestilence, earthquakes and so on, Both in their natural applications and their spiritual applications, together with the great beast, this great kingdom that is putting upon mankind the mandates of this great beast, which is that you receive, you you permit your mindset to be coordinated with the demands of 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 the urgent demands of survival of this beast so the point that i'm making is in the in the environment of the harvest at the end of the age all of the extremes both in nature and in the realm of the spirit are converging So this is not the gospel of Billy Graham, give me your hand, give God your heart and join join the church of your choice. You must not think of the gospel as being a static thing that is only presented in a certain form, the typical evangelical way of looking at how things are to be done. No, the gospel takes on urgencies when the circumstances of the earth become urgent. In days of peace, the gospel might well invite persons in ways that would disturb that peace. But certainly in the days of fury, and wrath, and impending judgments, it would be absurd to suggest that the gospel then remains, retains this very languid, uh, non-threatening form, and the declaration by the angelic, and whether that's an angel uh, flying in the heavens or the sound of the gospel by the uh, by the the angels on the earth, meaning the apostolic, uh, there is an urgency that is uncharacteristic to how we have viewed the gospel before and it is reduced to very simple, very direct, uh, very focused things. Because in an earth that is convulsing with these events and overrun by the beast, what is the gospel that appeals to people at that time? Live your best life now? <laughs> you know, you could, it's laughable, isn't it? No, it, it becomes this, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water." In other words, this is down to the last moments telling people of how how they may escape coming judgment, how they may escape the wrath of God because that's an environment of turmoil, an environment of death and destruction an environment of warfare and conflict. What is the gospel then in that environment? And that's my point, my point is that the gospel takes on the urgencies of the times and the gospel is never compromised sound, it is one that offers direct hope by speaking directly to the issues of the time that's going on. And that's what we're seeing here. Now another angel followed, verse 8, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now over in chapter 17, I want to skip there for just a moment because I think that it's important to tie these two pieces together, the falling of Babylon and the discussion of the judgment of God that comes upon Babylon and the form in which that judgment comes. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 1, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, "'Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot "'who sits on many waters.'" Now right after where we are in chapter 14 and going on from that point, seven bowls of wrath will be given to seven angels and they are pouring out various forms of God's judgment once the earth is reaped. And So that's what's referred to here when it says one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me and said, "'Come, I will show you the judgment "'of the great harlot who sits on many waters, "'with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, "'and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk "'with the wine of her fornication.' So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and was adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a cup full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication and on her head was written, "'Mystery, Babylon the Great, Mother of Harlots and of the abominations of the earth.' And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Christ. When I saw her, I marveled with great amazement." And so on. Now, going back to 1st Revelation 14, speaking of the judgment on Babylon, uh, it says Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, back. Earlier in the book of Revelation, I think it's about verse or chapter eight or nine, uh, we saw the woman, we saw a woman who went into the wilderness. Uh, Her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman herself went into the wilderness. I think that's earlier in, in, uh, than chapter 7. Let's look at chapter 6 for a moment. Anyway, the, the, the point is that the woman and her child were in the wilderness and uh, the child was caught up to God and to His throne and God made a place for the woman in the wilderness and that's kind of where we left her. But here we find her again in the wilderness and when we find her in the wilderness she is the harlot. It's fascinating, isn't it? And a harlot in chapter 17, Set for judgment. Now, what is important as we're looking at this in chapter 14 Babylon the Great is fallen. We see a conflation between the beast, who is this great kingdom that rules the nations of mankind that is called babylon but the woman is also called babylon and she rides on she rides upon the beast so it's the same spirit that is in the woman that is the spirit of this great beast, and it's satanic. This woman, and I'm not I'm not diving into chapter seventeen yet. Uh, the woman who is the harlot, but to say that it's an important observation that when the reference to Babylon is made, it is also. Uh, that reference is made to the beast but that reference is also made to the woman who rides upon the beast. Now the thing that we have seen about the beast is that it has seven heads and ten horns. Heads are upon the beast. One of the horns, is a little horn that speaks blasphemous things against the Most High and wages war against the saints. One of the things about the woman is she holds aloft a cup filled with the blood of the saints. So what I'm pointing out is that there is a conflation between the harlot of chapter 17 Who's as a mystery, a name written on a forehead, mystery, uh, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots, and so on, and just the plain reference to Babylon the Great that is fallen, that the kings of the earth um, were made drunk with the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So, a, a harlot. Practices fornication when she's uh, plying her trade. An unfaithful wife, however, is different. She's called an adulteress because she has a husband. This woman doesn't have a husband. And this woman, for this woman, her sexual favors. Are for sale, this is how she adorns herself. And with whom the kings of the earth consort and have uh, this, uh, this exchange. It's difficult to really speak about Babylon independently of speak, of speaking about the harlot church. Because the spirit within Babylon goes all the way back, as we were saying in the recent messages, goes all the way back to Cain who murdered his brother God had spoken before that and said that the seed of the woman will be, that he will place enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, one of the things we're noticing here is that this enmity is concentrated, the enmity between the seed of the woman who is the body of Christ in present tense and the seed of the serpent who is both both a false church and the philosophy of an age where the oppression of people, including the saints, is concentrated within a kingdom. So the spirit of the beast being the spirit of Satan and the spirit of the false church which is also the spirit of Satan, has a common expression in the beast upon which the woman sits. So the false church is actually the harlot who has the same identical spirit as the beast. They both have the spirit of Satan. When we speak of the spirit of, we're talking about the character, the attitude, the character, the intention, the purpose and it's all manifesting in terms of dominance and control of the whole earth and specifically warring against the saints. And one might say that dominance and control of the whole earth is the means by which this woman and this beast being conflated into that one spirit, it's the means by which they actually oppose the body of Christ. So as we, as we go back to chapter 14, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And we're about then to see that the gospel is that urgent and desperate cry as kind of a last call, Come in because the earth is about to be harvested and so are the saints. We'll continue on from there when we, re- when we return. I'm Sam Solon.